Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and unlike Mark Watney, I am not alone on this planet. I mean, podcast, I guess, but rather joined by my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Are you from Mars? I don't know. I'm from I, outer space. I just told them you were on this planet with me, so <laughs> don't make me a liar. I should have gone my, like, this is ground control to major tone. Is it in every space movie? So that's not really going to come it up might, anywhere in not. our notes, but is every movie about space obligated to have that song in it somewhere? Could be. I mean, I've, I mean, it's, it seems like it's in most movies in general. Like, I know it was in the first time I heard it. I kid you not, Aaron, and this is going to make me probably feel, well, it won't make me feel old, but I'll probably be shunned by some people. But the first time I heard that song, was in the movie Mr. Deeds, the Adam Sandler-led movie where, yeah, and <laughs> they were lip-syncing it or singing along with it. And I was like, this is a fun song. Where did you – oh, this is not from this decade, apparently. Never mind. Well, the first <laughs> time I heard it was in a movie, too. I just don't recall which one, but I know that I've heard it in at least one movie every single year that's newly released or something ever since then. It just feels like it's everywhere. But anyway, we've been really enjoying focusing heavily on films that we love lately. And so we wanted to keep that positive energy going this month, and we've decided to cover a Matt Damon double, followed by a Leonardo DiCaprio trifecta. We are going to kick things off by talking about Ridley Scott's awesome adaptation of Andy Weir's fantastic science fiction novel, Martian. We'll get into the movie shortly, but first I have a couple of quick announcements. First up is the August donor pick voting. This month, just like last August, we are going to cover what we consider to be classics. I don't want anybody to like get upset and think that that means black and white or something. It could, but it could also just mean a film that we consider to be something that is like big time noted in the culture. In the zeitgeist at the time, Andor has a very, very strong, highly regarded reputation. So the five films that we are putting up for the vote this month are The Graduate, Rear Window, Rocky, Rebel Without a Cause, and E.T. If you would like to be a part of the voting, you can go to patreon.com slash film, become a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar a month, and you can get access to all of our bonus content as well as vote monthly in these polls. The voting takes place from the 1st through the 10th of each month, so depending on when you're listening to this, you probably still have time to get involved and help us pick the classic episode that we're going to cover at the end of August. Second, and the big announcement, I think I mentioned this in our Mean Girls episode as well last week, but just in case anybody didn't check that one out, we are going to be doing a substitute summer blockbuster bracket event. That's a lot of words. Usually in August, the last two years, we have done this thing that we called Director Battle Month. It was a ton of fun. We would take a number of directors, four films from each of them that we had not done on the show yet, and we would set them up into a March Madness-style bracket, and the films from those directors would battle it out until we got a Final Four. The Final Four would be the movies that we covered in each of our episodes in August. It was a lot of fun. It was good times. But it was also a lot of work. This month, we are doing a bracket that is 
going to be a blast, I believe. Uh, it's a little less work on us, and I think it's going to be a little more, I guess, it's timely is the right word for it. So we don't have any summer blockbusters to see anew this summer, and so what we're going to do is we have taken all of the summer blockbusters in history and gone through the painful, and yes, it was actually painful, shout out to Don Shanahan of Every Movie Has a Lesson for doing this incredible work. We've adjusted them for inflation and ranked them one through whatever in order to determine seeding for this tournament. We've then split up each of the movies into the respective month that it was released. So the four corners of our bracket are going to be May, June, July, and then an April slash August section because that one was a little wanting if we left it as August, and because as time has gone on, more and more blockbusters have started to release in late April. It worked out really well. The voting is going to start in our Feelin' Film Facebook group tomorrow, which is actually going to be the day that this episode releases, Tuesday, August the 4th, with a couple of play-in games. This is where it's going to be really interesting. So the 15th and 16th seed in each of the four quadrants, are actually going to be consisted of, uh, they're going to come from, rather, eight potential films. So the bottom eight in each of these rankings that we put together are going to be put into a poll, and whichever two films come out at the top of those eight will be the 15th and 16th seed. This includes films such as Top Gun, Fast Five, Wonder Woman, some really big numbers that I think are going to potentially like sway the votes. Okay. When you see the bracket, you will understand that not everything looks quite as it may kind of be envisioned in your head. So Jurassic Park is a three seed, for example, it's not a one seed. Does it mean the Jurassic Park's not going to go far? Absolutely not. It probably will do just fine, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun, Patrick, because we're going to get to see some seeding upsets, which is always a joy in the tournament. So listeners, what you need to do is you need to join the Facebook group. We talk about this all the time. It's because we love it. It's a great place. It's got about 650 members. It's constantly having them rave about how wonderful of a place it is. We do ask that you uh, request access to it, but we approve you no matter what. Um, we do that by not making it public. It makes it a lot better. It's a lot more controllable, and the, the people there get to know each other and have a great time. And so that's where all the polls are going to take place. That's going to happen for a period of three weeks. Tons of polls, tons of voting, tons of discussion. Once we get down to a final four, what's going to happen is the Feel and Film team, myself, Patrick, and our contributors are going to get on a call, potentially a live chat call where audience participation can happen if I can make that work. But I can't make that promise. It's something I want to look into. Either way, we're going to record an episode of us battling out the final four. So you guys are going to decide the final four, and then we're going to argue about who becomes the champion, the second place, the third place, and the fourth place films. And then that's it. It'll be fun. It'll be great. We'll crown a winner, and that will be our substitute summer champion to take the place of all of the films that we had to pour one out for because they didn't get released this year. Whew. All right, Patrick, did I miss anything in that lengthy explanation? I don't think so. And as my current social media hiatus is still in effect, that was helpful for me, too. So when I 
eventually jump back in. It'll probably be after this, but I, uh, yeah, you did a great explanation. Very okay. Helpful. Listeners, if you want more info or you want to read up on that in a lot easier, you know, concise method than what I just tried to splurt out off the top of my head, you can read about it at feelinfilm.com. There is a blog post there that has all the details, has the bracket for you to see what films are matched up with what, and also a schedule for when the voting is going to take place. Check that out if you're so interested. All right, it's time to get on to The Martian. We're going to start with one more takeaways, as we usually do. Patrick, kick us off. Thank you, sir. Well, I think the only word that could sum up this movie is science. And probably one of the most iconic lines in the entire movie is when Mark Watney says, I'm going to science the out of this. And we were ready to go. From the very beginning, Aaron, it seemed like this whole movie was drenched in nothing but scientific experiments and discoveries and problem solving and it would normally be boring but for my money and i think for a lot of people because the story is so compelling because we're walking with this guy on the red planet seeing how he figures things out i think it makes science cool and i loved it i absolutely loved it hadn't seen it since it came out i don't think and I remember thinking, why do I not watch this every year? Because this is just really good. And then I realized that we have the extended edition, which is like two and a half hours. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of time to invest. But it was absolutely worth it. And this is definitely going to be a standard going forward to watch at least once a year when I want to have a great adventure or when I want to feel a little bit less smart about things that I know. Because this definitely makes me feel a little bit stupid when it comes to science. Well, that's okay. I mean, we are not astronauts nor botanists, so we are it's not, not meant... rocket science. Well, maybe it no, is. it actually is rocket science. Rocket science. <laughs> yeah, I, I came away with the same one-word takeaway, and there's actually not a lot to say here that we're not going to cover in detail. But you nailed the number one thing, which is the iconic quote, and I still remember, I guess, hearing that quote because I listened to the audio book. I never actually read it physically, but I heard it when this book came out and just being like, what? That's amazing. And of course it is the line that has just sort of become synonymous with this movie. The awesome thing about it is in my opinion, how much care was given on the film side to maintaining the scientific accuracy that the author, Andy Weir was so intent on when he was writing it. I was watching the making of documentary about the movie afterwards and unlearning about how much NASA was involved and how they essentially gave Ridley Scott and his crew an open door policy. And they were like, come, come visit, come check it out, come see what we have to do. And what's amazing and fascinating, Patrick, is that Andy Weir didn't have that. He made this all up. And when you watch the making of documentary, you start to learn about how close he was to accurate science. And NASA was incredibly impressed by some of his designs that he came out with and just some of the ways that he creatively figured out what Mark Watney might do if he was in this situation. And so I agree with you. It's far and away the driving force. I think it's probably the compelling part of any survival story like this, a stranded survival story, not necessarily a survival story like a Saving Private Ryan or situation, but like 
Castaway or something like that. It's about like, how do you use the environment in creative ways to keep yourself going and, and stay alive? And this is one that fascinatingly here in, you know, when it came out in the middle of the 2010s, this hadn't been told. I mean, it's rare, Patrick, that we get a unique story. And that is something I really appreciate about The Martian is it was a first as far as I know, or at least a first told in this way with this focus and the science being so heavily a factor. So I, I agree with you. The science is just amazing and, and it's fun and entertaining. And, and this is the first time I ever learned about the potatoes. I, I'm not going to lie. I had no earthly idea like that you could grow potatoes on Martian soil. Well, well, with the right kind of poop. Let's but just be clear. If I'm ever there, I know what to do. <laughs> Being keto, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. Actually, we talked those. about that when we watched the movie because I was watching it with somebody else who was keto, and we were like, "Man, we're screwed." I guess yeah. we would just have to have to eat some carbs. We'd you need like, a Martinez with you to poop for you, because <laughs> he's oh, no good. That's he's true. no he's, he's no good for anything. Yeah, that's except... true. <laughs> all right. Well, here's your spoiler warning, listeners. We are going to discuss the film and all of its amazingness in depth. We're going to tell you what happens. We're going to talk about all the science, all the humor, all the emotional stuff. And if you don't want that spoiled, you should absolutely go experience this story for yourself, whether it's the book first and the movie after or the movie first and the book after or just one or the other. Any of it is great. They're both amazing and we highly recommend them. So do that and then you can come back and listen to this episode. Well, The Martian is about celebrating intelligence, creativity, and human spirit. That is the words of Andy Weir, as he said in the Making of documentary that I was watching. And I really feel like they nailed that goal. The characters in this film were intentionally portrayed as the best version of themselves. And it was something that really stuck out to me on this rewatch, Patrick, was just how clean cut it felt. Like there's really no problems. No one has any drug issues or any past history of spousal abuse or you know, they're not going home to a bad situation that they're running away from. They're not emotionally, I don't know, just, you know, in a bad place. Everyone is on point as they need to be in this film, focused at all times on what is happening within this story. And I just wondered if you noticed that and, and how it affected this for you, because I feel like it's very much a different kind of drama than we typically see that there's always something going on with the characters or at least some of the characters beneath the surface that is sort of informing i would say bad decision making or mistakes that they make in order to increase the drama and to provide obstacles and struggles for people to overcome but there's none of that in this it doesn't come because of things and choices that they make it comes from just the environment did that work well or do you think that it was missing some human imperfection i think the martians a movie we need right now <laughs> honestly not just because most of us want to get off this planet but because of the fact that a movie like this really does celebrate what it means to have a we mentality instead of a me mentality 
there's this really interesting viewpoint watching these characters from NASA as they struggle with trying to figure out how to get Watney home and whether or not they can. And it seemed like almost everybody on that staff had that sole purpose that they cared about him. They cared about him more than the mission. And that caring extended to him at one point, probably because he needed to keep his mind off things, but he continued the mission. I thought that was interesting watching it this time around. I'd forgotten that that took place, that the back third of the movie, we see him actually completing the mission that the crew wasn't able to because of the storm, because they had to evacuate. And at first I thought, yeah, it's definitely for him to be able to kind of occupy his mind, kind of keep his himself occupied. But at the same time, he also understood that there was a reason they came to Mars, not just to be the people that went to Mars, but because they actually had a mission. And when you wrap that up with everybody else, it seems like NASA represents the best of what we can be as people, where we are looking for ways to solve the problem, not for the people to blame for the problem. Not once did I hear, oh yeah, it's the crew's fault because they left them. Oh, it's NASA's fault because they weren't able to do this. It's the mechanical failure of this. No, it was none of that and all of that. And it seemed like every character wanted to own a piece of that guilt and wanted to own a piece of that redemption because of the fact that space travel, as Watney says, is dangerous. It is unpredictable. And when you get out there, you never know what it's going to do. It's this dance that you're playing with of going, we can plan all we want, we can do the math, but in the end, it's space, dude. And space can kick your butt if it wants to. And I think The Martian shows us that, but it also shows the resilience of the people that say, okay, bring it on space. We'll do our best to accommodate that by coming up with really, really interesting solutions. Some may work, some may not. And more than anything, Aaron, I think that it shows off how much science is really about discovery and asking the question, what if, for the sake of a better future, for the sake of a better solution. The folks at NASA are represented as people who don't just look at the one solution, they look at 12. And yeah, if the solution that they come up with doesn't work, there's guilt and there's remorse, but they do it again. They try. I never once saw anyone say, you know what? It's hopeless. There's no point. No, because one man's life is worth it. But I think under the surface of that, that's kind of the goal of NASA is to be a an entity of discovery and to explore the unknown, which is space travel. And to also recognize that, you know what, we don't have all the answers and we're going to make mistakes and we're willing to take the risk for the sake of rescuing people, for the sake of discovering new things on other planets. And I love that. Absolutely love that because I think it's something that we don't have a lot of. There's not a lot of optimism in our world. And I I, I say that tongue in cheek that it's the movie we need right now, but it's kind of true. Because I want to see the best in people. And to answer your question, I think that adding drama within 
people, between people, you know, drug abuse or whatever would have been completely distracting because we had enough conflict with space in and of itself. It was enough to occupy a two and a half hour movie. We didn't need conflict between husbands and wives. We didn't need conflict necessarily between staff members. It was disagreements, but nothing to the level where that became a subplot. And I think if we had had that, it would have become a different kind of movie. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no question. It would have been a different kind of movie. I don't think it's, it's not even up for debate. It would have been way different movie. I'm just, I think I'm blown away by the fact that the movie doesn't have that. And most movies do. I watched a film that comes out at the end of this week and I reviewed today a little IFC independent film called Made in Italy. And my big takeaway or one of my big takeaways, I guess, from this film was that there was no sex, no drugs, no violence at all. It was a family drama with a comedy element to it and a little bit of romance. And it was the sweetest, most wholesome thing ever. And I was like blown away because I realized how rare that is, that we just don't see that because we seem to be often fixated with the realism of characters and myself included. Like I actually gravitate toward authenticity very often. And so I feel like that gray area is where most very you know real human beings actually live. We are messy people. We make mistakes. We don't have it all together. But I feel like in the context of what the film is trying to tell us for the reasons that you articulated, it is the perfect choice. And it is the right way to go about this because it would have changed things. We need to be able to root for everybody. I root for everybody in this movie, and that makes me happy. There's no villain. I love that. I love that about it. The villain is, you know, just time, I guess, Mm, more so than anything. And you're just rooting for all of the actual humans because they're humans, not because of how you specifically feel about their beliefs or their skin color or their religion or anything else. You're, you're rooting for them because they're humans. Yeah. There is something to be said about a movie that was released in 20, 2010 and what a diverse cast we have here. We have strong female leads. We have people of color in places of authority. And it's, it's, it's a great great cast in general of just talented people but it's different from the days of the right stuff when you have all white men (laughs) and that's perfectly fine because what i think science does what i think math does is it brings people together we were talking about this in our mean girls episode and something that katie says is that she loves math why because it's the same in every country and i think the same thing can be said for science where a science experiment is looking at a common area, a common thing, and trying to figure it out. We all live on the planet Earth, and there are so many things about it that are different, depending on what country you're from. But there are things that bring us some common ground with math and science that allow us to have that kind of camaraderie and to cooperate and to create an environment that's represented so well in this movie in something that I think a lot of people can, (laughs) pun intended, gravitate towards, which is this idea of space travel and that unknown. 
I mean, I think a lot of people, I won't say a lot of people, myself personally, I grew up wanting to get on the shuttle and be an astronaut and you know, float in space. And maybe I'm in the minority, but I, I love the space movies. I love space camp and I love gravity and interstellar and this stuff like that. And to see that represented in such a way that it ignores or it lowers the importance maybe of gender, race, all those types of things. And it elevates science. It elevates the thing that is universal, I think is a pretty beautiful thing. Well, speaking of, another goal of the story was to keep it as factual as possible with the science specifically. And I mentioned about how Ridley Scott had this open door to NASA and NASA actually was on record as praising Andy Weir's vision. So I wonder, you know, did, I guess we've kind of talked about it. We both seemingly think that the realistic nature of this is a plus. What do you consider to be the more sci-fi elements of the story? And I guess for you, did they enhance or did they provide a conflict with the tone that we were getting? Because this is considered science fiction. It is not strictly from, uh, you know, a, a school book. We're not just going to a college course here. There are some embellishments. And I just, did any of those embellishments not work for you? Or did everything seemingly come close enough to being realism that it fit well? Well, I think in a real mission, you would not allow that much disco music to come on board. I think that's science fiction in and of itself. No, I, I, I think that for the most part, I didn't really feel like this was science fiction, but I also didn't feel like it was something on Discovery Channel that we were trying to walk through and saying, this is the story of Mark Watney and how he survived on Mars for 900 souls, you know, whatever. I think what made it sci-fi is the fact that we had such creative solutions to problems, things that you don't think about in terms of what would this, what would happen if this took place? What would happen if this took place? I mean, from the very beginning, we see him do something that is very much scientific, pulling the shrapnel out of his belly and giving himself surgery. But from from there on out, I think we start suspending our disbelief as he starts to get more on that fringe science of things like, if I did this, then maybe this would happen. And I think, I don't know that I would call it believable, but I would call it more believable than, say, somebody that uses a, a homing device that beams something somewhere else. Um, everything just felt very tangible to me. And I think if he had created... Okay, if there's if there's one sci-fi element, it's how he created water. I mean, he explains to us through the log that you take hydrogen, you take oxygen. And I've never seen that done. Of course, I've never seen potatoes grow on Mars either. But that, to me, would probably be the most sci-fi-esque type thing. Maybe his escape and having to like tear out everything and basically be launched from a tarp. That's probably it. But I think it's in those more extreme problem-solving situations that we get sci-fi-esque, but we're already kind of buying into the whole situation anyway, so it didn't feel that extreme for me. 
Yeah, I was going to mention that, and I'm glad that you landed there, too, pun intended also, about the way the film builds with these solutions that we are getting in order to bring us along to the point where we fully believe that taking off this tarp thing is going to work. Now, we're a little bit shocked when that happens, obviously, because Mark is shocked. Like, he he himself is like, uh, what are you talking about? Are you sure about this? But we have seen so much be accomplished between he and NASA together figuring things out that it's no longer science fiction to us. It's it's very much hard to call it science fiction because there's not much about it that couldn't happen in a real world mission today. And usually science fiction is about envisioning what could happen just around the corner in the future, but we're not quite there yet. But you know, outside of probably some timing of vessels and, and rockets being shot up and back and forth and how things play out, the actual solving of the problems, there's nothing about them that required technology that doesn't exist yet. And that is really awesome. And, and I enjoyed it being a consistent manner throughout the film without giving me anything that felt out of place. So Mark is all alone on Mars for three quarters of an Earth year is about the time it it is in souls. Like I did five hundred something souls, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I don't know the number, but I wrote it down. But I, I did the math at the time when I was watching it to make sure, and it's around nine months ish, nine to ten months. But we see him go, you know, not just be successful and ingenious with the way he manages to survive, but he also faces numerous setbacks along the way, and. For me, I view this story not just through a lens of watching it because it's fun to see somebody solve all of these problems, but I think about it from a very psychological place. Honestly, Patrick, I would have died in the first couple of minutes because I would have never been able to perform self-surgery. In fact, I'm not smart enough to have left the rod in my stomach Knowing that it was sealing my suit, I would have instinctively pulled it out, maybe, if I could gather the strength, because that knowing it was going to hurt, I'm such a baby with pain, I might not have, but I would have tried. That would have been my thought, would be like, I need to pull this out. So I would have died instantly right there, because I would have punctured the hole in my suit. But then if it came to actually having to, you know, pull something out of my body, it's funny because this happens like really at the beginning of the film. And it's like the only cringeworthy moment. And it is, it's some cringeworthy stuff. Like it's heavy. It's kind of in there. (laughs) I got to admit like that surgery scene just does me over. I'm just like, ugh, by the end of that. And then, you know, he has to staple himself, but there are multiple incidents in the film where Mark has to overcome continued problems. One of my most, I guess, I don't know. The, one of the com- connecting points that I almost had was this moment of extreme anxiety that Mark faces after his hab world explodes and he has to use duct tape to seal it up, which is brilliant in and of itself. But then he, he seals it and he has this tarp creating the suction inside and he goes around and he caulks the outside. And that night, there is this massive storm and it is just blowing and flapping 
and you see him legitimately scared. He's sitting there. He's kind of like shaking back and forth. And it, it's one of the only times in the movie. We only see him like this maybe two or three times. Mm-hmm. And it's always brief because he's got a handle on it. But like we see him very, very scared and with yeah. tons of fear. And you've got to think like there's a massive storm out there, Patrick. All it takes is one pebble, puncture a hole in that thing. He's dead. That's it. That's it. One piece of this falls apart. And so I started thinking about like how on the precipice Mark is for the whole time he's there. And it's easy to gloss over that when you're watching the film because you're laughing often and you're thinking about how fun it is that he solved all these problems. But I really enjoy the fact that the movie will continuous, not continuously, but will intermittently drop us back down to let us remember like this is serious and he is always on the brink of death, that it is just one minuscule thing going wrong that could set it all apart. And so Mark has to psychologically do what he says at the end of the film when he's teaching that class and they ask him about surviving or or he actually, they don't ask him anything. He's like explaining to them and he says, you just work the next problem. And if you work, you have enough problems, you get to come home. And so psychologically, did you pick up on that? I know you have a degree in this. And so I really wanted your perspective because I can tell you, Patrick, I don't think I have this in me. I think that this is a trait that not necessarily all humans possess. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's fight or flight in a big way. I don't know, but I just feel like this is something that is what makes a person like Mark Watney, what makes people like astronauts exceptional is their ability to handle this level of stress and psychologically compartmentalize that fear in order to get the job done. I think there's a level of that that exists in those who choose to become astronauts because in a similar way to military, and you can speak to this, you train your brain to accept certain things that when you go to Afghanistan or someplace where it's a high combat area, depending on what you're doing there, you expect there to be shrapnel. You expect there to be bombs going off around you. It just becomes normal. Not that you accept it, because at any given point, you're right. A bomb could go off, you could hit a landmine, you could explode, whatever. You have to always be on your toes. Astronauts, I think, have the same mentality. And I can't remember who said it, if it was from a movie. Maybe it was Alien. <laughs> but someone said, in space, no one can hear you scream. And It's a tagline on the poster. But yeah, but yes, it's from what, On the Martians? No, in Alien. Okay, there we that's, go. It's, it's, that's what I thought. I, I remember, no one movie. says it, thankfully. That would be like really on the nose. <laughs> but the sentiment, I think, is real for space in general. There is no oxygen in space, so everything is quiet. I think it's what makes Interstellar such a fantastic movie is we get the sciencey side of the silence of space, and there's eeriness to that. I think the the sound editing and the sound mixing in this movie really kind of catapult that. And what I'm getting to from a psychological standpoint is we capture the isolation of Watney. And from the very beginning, this was something interesting to me is that I don't know that we ever get a pause for him to say, Oh my gosh, I'm alone. Like we kind of just, we know he's alone because he was left there, but he goes into the hab. And then the first thing he does after he stitches himself up is he gets on the log and he starts, it's almost as if he's accepted the fact that he's here by himself. And I think that 
not knowing how an astronaut thinks. I'm just kind of projecting a psychological idea on it. I think that there's a level of acceptance that at any given point on a mission, you will be alone and that you could be alone forever, that something could go wrong and you could get left behind. Those images from like gravity or images from movies where you see these astronauts just kind of floating above the Earth's atmosphere. As a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to fall and they're going to burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Or what would happen if Newton's law went into effect and somehow their jet propulsion malfunctioned and they just started spurting and it went away. You know, they started floating away towards the moon. That scares me, Aaron. I mean, that is that freaks me out because of the fact that if you're doing that, you can't stop. And I think that for an astronaut, you have to be able to overcome that. You have to have the mentality of saying being alone is part and it's part of the risk. It's the risk of being an astronaut because of the fact that you could, you could be. And the unpredictability of space, I think, really kind of elevates that. So for Watney, I think looking at Matt Damon's portrayal of Mark Watney seemed very accurate. We had these pockets of breakdowns. The moment that you were talking about, I think he was counting potatoes. And as the storm is just kind of raging outside, you can see him kind of cringing a little bit. Not yep. because he feels like he's going to get hit. I think it's part of that. But I think it's also the fact that he's just like, when's it going to stop? When's it going to be over? Mm -hmm. And I think he portrays this character in a way that says i have to be someone who's always looking for a solution because if not i'm going to die survival is about always looking for the next problem to solve because there's always that thing that's right around the corner that could probably kill me right and i and being prepared for it when it comes right and so i think that's why like i realized really quickly like i'm not cut out for that i don't think like that and this is something that gives me so much respect for that job because I can see that in action. I can see the type of person that it requires to be able to even do this. Right. Yeah. And, and that's not me. Was there anywhere that you felt like you would have tapped out? The, would yeah, uh, it would have to be when his shield cracks and he puts duct tape on it. I'm like, I would have died. That countdown of the oxygen saying, you know, 15%. 10%. I'm like, screw it. I'm dead. You would have froze. Yeah, I would have, I'm done. I would have froze too. The last thing I would have done was think, Oh, let me grab the duct tape and fix this. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like it's nuts, man. Um, were there any, before we get off the science heavy portion of this, is there any experiment? Or I guess they're not experience. Is there any scientific solution, anything in this movie that stuck out to you? more so than others. I guess I should just reword that. What are your favorite solutions that Mark came up with, Mark and or NASA, for how to solve the problems they faced? Well, I absolutely love the potatoes. I mean, I think that's something that's going to be just just very much iconic. The ability to replicate, and the fact that he says, you know, I'm a botanist, I can do this, this is great. I would say more than anything, though, it's the the solution that Parnell comes up with to, to rescue Whitney and less about the actual solution, although it's pretty amazing, but how he describes it, 
I think Donald Glover is fantastic in this and the way he just <laughs> the scene's <laughs> amazing. The scene is just fantastic. Uh, and just the way he uses the stapler to describe the, uh, the Aries and how it, you know, just making these noises and stuff. This is a, I mean, this is a rocket scientist. This guy is like, has like probably a 300 IQ and he's making like little kid noises as he's going around <laughs> Jeff Daniels head. Right. And that scene is the meta scene as well. Right. That right. gives the Lord of the Rings tie in for Sean Bean, where yeah. they're talking about the Council of Elrond and they're like, the Fellowship of the Ring was deciding how to destroy the ring. And then he's like, Teddy, you're Glorfindel. And then Sean Bean is there. And it's just it cracks me <laughs> up okay. so much because of that tie in. And it's like I, I felt like very much when I was I remember seeing that or reading that in the book and just being like, OK, this guy is having fun. Like he is writing this book fully aware of who he is in the moment in the time period and not trying to you know project and make it too classic in a sense he's not trying to make it timely or whatever he's capturing something that those of us who follow pop culture know which is sean bean dies in every movie but luckily not in this one he just gets he does fired. in lord of the rings but not in this one <laughs> he does get fired <laughs> but it's just so fun because he it was part of the fellowship of the ring right. you know um, yeah, I, I agree with you. The potatoes are iconic. I mean, they are truly going to be the thing that everyone talks about with this movie. And that's cool. That's really neat. That's when you know you have something extremely special is when there is something like that, that everyone who has experienced this story latches onto and immediately thinks of when it comes up. I also really enjoyed the problem solving for how to talk to NASA I just thought that was brilliant because I'm not the kind of person who would have ever kind of figured that out. But just the idea that they went back and forth to solve that problem together, kind of coming up with the idea of pointing the cameras and then I'm going to go get this camera. And I really love that scene, too, where they're just like, I don't know where he's going. And then they go and, you know, Vincent and they pick up the the picture in the cafeteria and they get yelled at and they're like drawing. I know where he's going. I know where he's going. I know what he's doing. And then, you know, just, I loved watching those moments where they, he and NASA were like replicating things on one side of earth and then also him on Mars. And they were trying to solve the problems. They talked about that in the documentary as well about how, accurate that was like that is actually what they do they really do have mock-ups of all of these things at nasa and at jpl and so it was a natural way for them to kind of experiment along with him and try to figure out solutions and then they're able to talk back and forth i also just don't think the film would be the same without them being able to communicate i just i don't know that it would have been able to hold up without that it had to be done and I like it for the first quarter or third of it where he doesn't have the ability to talk to them because it gives it a unique spin, but it needed that change in order to make it work for right. a full length story. Right. The other thing that you, you mentioned going back to what we talked about earlier is what kept this movie grounded for me was the introduction of Pathfinder, something that was very much about the history of NASA. You know, it was a rover back in the mid 90s and it did have a mission so for Watney to find it 
and be able to use it, I thought was a great kind of callback to NASA as a as an organization. And it gave it some believability. Yeah, I would have thought, well, if he just found Pathfinder, maybe he would have blah, 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 blah. Well, turns out he did. Now, the fact that he found it on this big, giant planet, okay, whatever. I'm willing to spend my disbelief there. But the fact that you're incorporating something that's very much real into a science fiction movie, something that did exist in history, I think gives it some of that grounded flavor that we like. Did you read the book? I did. It was. It's probably been my second favorite audio book to listen to. Uh, Ready Player One. One. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I'm right here with you. Those two are just so memorable for me as well, and I've listened to both multiple times. Well, Andy Weir, the author, said this. He didn't want to focus on deep psychological issues because he wanted to focus more on the science and the problem solving. And that that is where the humor came in. He said, if you're going to give someone a ton of scientific exposition, you have to break it up to keep people engaged. That, and I'm also a smartass. <laughs> so I wondered, did you, I mean, I, I'm not going to ask you, did you enjoy the humor in this movie? It, the humor is amazing. We all love the humor. Did you feel that Matt Damon performance-wise matched the Watney that we got to experience either in the audiobook or on the page when it comes to the wit, the sarcasm, and the humor? And do you think that this story could be told without that? I think it could be told, but I don't think it'd be nearly as entertaining. And what makes Watney's character and Matt Damon's portrayal of him so compelling is the fact that he's not a commander. He's not the high up guy. But he's also not the Martinez who apparently doesn't do anything important. He's kind of in that middle ground where he's a botanist and much love to every botanist listening right now. But when I think of astronauts, I don't think of botanists. I don't think of plant based studies. I think of astrophysicists. I think of flight commanders and pilots and things that have that kind of flair to them so when you have a guy who is stranded on this planet two things that i thought were pretty great one he doesn't take himself seriously because he's a botanist but when it comes to the things that he can do well he really amps up the ego in a hilarious way he goes i'm a botanist i can do this like nobody else can do this but me I'm actually on stage now. I'm getting the spotlight. People would need me because I can do these things. The second thing, Aaron, is that something I've learned in leadership is that levity is so important when it comes to tension. That if I'm in a meeting with some people and there's a lot of heat from people just yelling back and forth and I feel like tension's rising, sometimes it takes a really good dad joke for people to just go, what? Or for me to draw something obscure on the whiteboard and say this is where we are you know whatever it is i think watney needed that for himself and i think that matt damon as an actor has that ability to just kind of be slightly sarcastic uh, a lot of his roles that i've seen him in that i enjoy him in are that he's just very deadpan very straight-faced when he is either cutting into somebody like in goodwill hunting or when he is 
playing the slightly ignorant thief like Linus in Ocean's Eleven. And I think that when you watch him as Mark Watney, you kind of start to fuse those two people together. In fact, after I listened to the book and then I watched the movie and, of course, did my comparisons, which were good. I love both. But looking back, I now, when I listen to the book, I picture him. It's almost as if we've got the Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man kind of thing. And I think when I think Mark Watney, I don't think I can picture anybody else in that position besides Matt Except Day. Mark Watney is Iron Man. Yes, which I think he pulls off that slightly less effectively, but still effectively. <laughs> yeah, definitely not with the smoothness. It's more like like Mark 1 first yes. attempt, Tony Mark Stark. Point one. Mark like point when one. He, yeah. oh, Mark Mark. Mark, point one. Anyway, the puns are endless. <laughs> they really are. No, I agree with you. And I think that that's another very special telling thing is when characters become so perfect in a film that we then can transpose them into the books that we love and we can't see them any other way. And I'll give an example. It's not always the case. So for... Ready Player One, I do not see the actors in the book when I'm rereading the book. And I have re-listened to the book. And, and obviously it's a different story. It changes some of the beats of the story. But I still, listening to Will Wheaton talk about that book, or talk about it, read the book, it's a different vision that I have in my head for the characters than what I've seen in Ready Player One. And I've watched the movie dozens of times, right? But Matt Damon is my Mark Watney forever, just like my Lord of the Rings film characters are my vision of those characters in the books now when I read the books. And the same thing with Harry Potter. I can't have a different look to them because it is they perfected the role for me. Uh, and so I completely agree with you there. And the humor is just, it's awesome. I think it is my kind of humor. It fits perfect for me. And I loved the structural element of him talking and leaving video logs it provides a really cool method to tell story where he is able to talk to the audience without talking to the audience because in most movies it would be annoying and you'd be like okay this is getting dry because we're just getting dumped exposition on us but instead because he's recording it for posterity's sake or sending messages to the you know nasa then it's able to be the same effective method of relaying information but in a fun interesting and dynamic way and so i think it is just a brilliant weaving of how that is created in this film to make it entertaining whereas it, it would be very much not so without that uh specific way of doing it we talked about this a little bit uh, earlier about how, you know, one of the great things about the story is getting to see NASA's involvement and the global effort that it requires to save him. And just in general, how the mission is managed on all sides by his crewmates, NASA, JPL, the media aspect of it, the Chinese joining in. Do you think that the world could ever come together to actually accomplish something like this right now? 
and maybe this is asking for a very cynical answer, unfortunately, but do you believe in this story or is the power of this that it reminds us to be hopeful that we could? And, and also, I guess, and follow that. I want to know what you think. I'll tell you, I don't believe that this is a realistic scenario. I do not believe that enough people in enough positions of power would care about one man. And when Teddy is caught after the fact, having sent the crew the maneuver and them mutinying in order to turn Hermes around to go get Mark, he is talking to Mitch. Or, sorry, when I get him confused. When Mitch has been caught, he is talking to Teddy, and Teddy says, every time something goes wrong, the world forgets we exist. I'm trying to keep us in the air. It's bigger than one person. Mitch says, no, it's not. I am very cynical at this point, and I do not believe that enough people have Mitch's point of view. I believe that we would leave Mark Watney on Mars. I really, with all of my heart, sadly, believe that. And that's one thing I think I love about this story so much, in a weird way, is it could be something that makes me go, oh, this is unrealistic. But instead, it makes me go, man, you know, this is what it should be like. This is the goal. This is how it should work. Everybody should come together. Everybody should care about one person and one life, regardless and we should throw everything at him. But man, you're talking millions, if not billions of dollars, Patrick, to save one guy. So I kind of wanted just to talk about this in general. I wanted to know what you thought about basically getting to see all of these different elements. And then also, I do want your opinion on should we or should we have not done what we did as a planet to save Mark Watney? The should and the would, I think, are obviously two different answers. Because if if I'm putting on my spiritual lenses, I'm thinking about the shepherd who went back for the one lost sheep and left the 99. There's an importance to being individualized and to mattering to people. It's important to realize, Aaron, the world did not rescue Mark Watney. NASA and a partnership with the East saved Mark Watney. And if we're going to get specific, five individuals saved Mark Watney. I understand that it took a lot of money and that a lot of money could have been saved. But the fact is, had this existed today, I think NASA, with the power of media, with the power of the digital word, NASA would have done it. Because there is value to saving face. If the United States, with or without China, chose to leave a man behind on a planet to die, America would have been branded as, well, something I can't say on this show. But the fact is, I think the motive would have been different. I, I don't think people would be crowding the streets of New York like it's New Year's Eve by any means. I think this is 
Apollo 13 all over again, where they're trying to get the guys back home and people think it's kind of an interesting thing until he either comes back or he dies. And then three months later, what's the next story? And sadly, I think that's the reality that we live in. So should we have? Yes, absolutely. Because one life is worth it. But it's also worth it because from a public point of view, if you didn't, you're going to be branded as something really bad. So I I do think that you're right from a... Of course I'm right. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there's something that Teddy, I think, also says about how, you know, if we send them back out there, maybe it's Commander Lewis talking to the crew in that amazing scene where they're deciding what to do. But she's like, there's X amount of days that something goes wrong. It is. It's Commander Lewis. I love, it's almost my connecting point. And she's like, if blah, blah, blah happens, we die. If this is this, we die. If this is this, we die. If this is this, we die. And Mitch says something similar, or Teddy says something similar when they're debating this down on Earth about we are risking X amount of lives in order for a very, very minuscule chance to save one. What happens when this goes wrong, Patrick? And now we've lost six or seven astronauts. Is that worth it? Is that the right call? And I think ultimately for me, the most important factor here is that I believe in what Mitch is doing. Mitch says it's the crew's decision. And that's how I feel. You're the ones in space with the opportunity to make the call about your own lives. As NASA and as the ground, as China, as whatever. And I, I say that when I said the world, I meant the entities involved in making the decisions. Gotcha. Yeah. We are going to give you the financial backing to do what you feel is right. And if you want to put yourselves at risk, we're going to say, here you go. We're on board. Let's make it happen. But I truly believe the decision is no one's to make other than the people on that shuttle. Yeah, I would agree with that. And to an extent, I believe that we would have global partners. There's a really, really great scene where the the Chinese counterparts are watching this news conference and they're, these two people are having this conversation and there's almost like no hesitation. Like, yeah, let's help them. And the one thing that stands out to me is that there is a comment about if we do this, we lose the opportunity to launch this on our own. And the commander counterpart says, I don't remember his name. I apologize for not, but he essentially says, look, we can't make this public. This has to be a partnership between scientists. And I think that, I don't remember if this happens. I think it does in the book, but I think this re emphasizes the importance of science being that universal language that it's not at this point it's not about saving face it's about saving a life now when it comes to whose decision it is to make i would agree with you because the crew they're the ones that are going to be doing the thing and so ultimately it's their choice to make the other thing i need to say is that again astronauts take a risk and if five individuals or 
a an entity like NASA decides that they're going to send these people to save this guy's life, this is going to sound harsh, but this is the risk you take as an astronaut. It's not the same as taking a risk as, I mean, would you do the same thing as a firefighter? Like if there was a guy in flames inside a building and the only way to get him out was to send three other people in there, would you do that? I, mean, I would think you would because that guy is important. Or is it, or is it worth losing those three lives for the sake of that one? It's a dilemma that I think exists when it comes to the value of one life over many. And I think from a human point of view, there's a small piece of each one of us that says, yes, it is worth it because it challenges us on a selfish level to say, is my life worth losing for the sake of gaining his? And it's a question that we have to wrestle with. Right now. Yes. People every day. Exactly. <laughs> In this current pandemic. Yeah. That's why I kind of brought it up was because I agree with you a hundred percent there. I think that's what the movie makes me think about is wrestling with that idea and that concept of selflessness and the value of my own life versus the value of someone else's and what to do. It's why that scene was so close to being my connecting point where they're all making the decision and it has to be unanimous and there is no coercing each other. And they voice their concerns and they're not afraid. I love how much of a family this crew is. They're equally a family, but also a machine who understands chain of command and follows it at every turn. You know what I mean? Like you see them joking so much, but what happens when Martinez is about to tip over at the very beginning of the movie? He's like, I cannot push this button without you. You have to verbally tell me to push this button. But then he will joke around and make fun of Commander Lewis all the time when it's when it's right. So I love the way that this crew is depicted as both family and machine uh, from a, from an action NASA chain of command standpoint, and they all get to voice their concerns and they, they are not afraid to share them and say, you know what? I don't really want to do this. Like I don't want to be in space this long, or I don't want to risk it. But ultimately Mark would do this for us. And so we're going to go get our boy. You know, and, and it is, it's hopeful. It's what I want the movie to be. And again, it's sort of like that whole, it goes back to that whole thing at the very front of this episode where we talked about the best version of ourselves that Andy Weir wanted to present. Yes, you could have made this a cynical movie where there's a lot more considering each other. And you know what? Maybe Mark's not worth it. And maybe it's not that, but th this isn't the story he wants to tell. This isn't what he wants us to think about. He wants us to be hopeful. He wants us to think that this is possible still in the world that we live in, that people could still make this choice. And I like that. Well, let's wrap up before Connecting Point by talking about the action. This is an action movie, and it has a lot of special effects. I would like to drop this bit of knowledge because I did watch this documentary, and it made me very intrigued to find out where these shots came from. I was really curious if they used any topographical maps of Mars to create the landscape in any way come to find out they didn't it was uh, budapest and i believe where was the other one? Oh man now i'm trying to i gotta find it in my notes did i not write it down why didn't i write it down patrick i think i told you where it was and now i've forgotten one of them is budapest uh and the other place is some other desert <laughs> Some other desert in the Middle East, um, but they were actually on location in two different places. And 
that's where the filming was. And it was pretty incredible, like watching them on this desert, like driving this actual rover that they created. Like Mark actually had to drive this thing that they made for some of the shots. And it was cool to see, like, and it looked like Mars. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what Mars looks like, but it looks like for me, it's Mars. You know what I mean? So anyway, you know, along the lines of what Mars looked like, and then also some of the special effects, did it match up visually with what your expectations were? Because I think it had to tow a very thin line between realism and the action sequences taking it into sci-fi territory. Um, for one thing. And then for the other thing, just managing the flow of the film, I will say for me, it's brilliantly done. The extended edition, like you said, it's about two and a half hours long. The way that we move through action, drama, humor, etc. is perfect. I never feel it. I never get too bogged down and think, oh my gosh, this scene is going on way too long. I wish we would get to something else. And for me, that's just the highest compliment I could ever give it. I think that the visual effects are incredibly well done. And I really enjoy watching things like him shooting up into the atmosphere with no top on his uh, pod. And, you know, with him... The scene that I, I literally hold my breath, it just reminds me of gravity all the time, is you know him up there in the tether at the very end when he's trying to, to hang on to it and just stay with her and the speed of his body is pushing him away and they're rapping and spinning and it's just, just craziness. And you're like, he's so freaking close, but like visually that's on par with some of those incredible shots that we see in gravity, in my opinion. So... I thought that it was perfect in that regard. I just wondered what you had to say about that. I love the visuals too. And for me, the, the biggest visual came right before that, where just before he jettisons and becomes Iron Man, you see him spinning in space at such a rapid like velocity. But of course, we don't experience that because in space, it's just, it's, I don't even know how he would describe how that feels like if his vertigo is just completely like whacked or something like that. It's interesting. You mentioned that real quick. I'm sorry. Keep, keep in mind what you're about to say. We, when I was watching it, someone mentioned that the spaceship, the Hermes, the crew was on looked like it was moving so slow. And I Googled like relative speed of a spacecraft in space. And it's like, 15,000 miles per hour or something. But like when you watch it because of the perspective, because of having nothing to really compare size and movement to in space, you can't tell that, but it's really going at like 15,000 miles per hour, but it looks like it's just kind of like putzing along. Yeah. Also, it's not as cool as the Starship Avalon, but you know, I digress. (laughs) That was meant to be a luxury cruiser true i mean true yeah, <laughs> you're right it still had its cool points and i think i called it the aries earlier so i apologize for calling it that i got my greek gods mixed up anyway for me the sound i mentioned this earlier the sound editing and mixing really really stood out i love the soundtrack harry gregson williamson i think is his name harry gregson williams those guys with three names kill me 
he has moments where it doesn't feel overwhelming. The small, intimate moments, there are so many of them. And like you mentioned earlier, we have a moment to just breathe with Mark. The soundtrack helps elevate that. And then there are really cool Marsy type sounds in his score that make you feel like you're on this alien planet. The other thing is just, I don't know why I was attracted to this, but just hearing how Mark was cutting things and how he was chewing and all these different kind of close up kind of moments where we feel like we're right here with him as he's putting in a log entry and he's, I guess, chewing on a cracker and we just, we can hear the food and it's, it's like, yeah, that's what you would hear because he's alone. There's nothing going on. He's on a planet that's quiet until there's a storm. And so that's all we get. So I think throughout the movie, being able to hear like the sound of the rover against the dirt, the how the wind goes against the tarp as it's blowing back and forth. All those different things, I think, really immerse me into this world of the opposite of what you feel like space is, which it's all silence. Now we're in a planet in a hab that is essentially just mechanical and whatnot. It's just this great little contrast. And I, I found myself really kind of focusing in on the sound elements of the entire movie, not only just the score, but the different sound effects and how it was all mixed together. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think the sound is phenomenal. I actually went out of my way to watch this over at a friend's house with a surround sound system turned all the way up and I was floored to say the least. I came home and immediately rewatched the opening storm scene after seeing it at his house with his surround sound. I watched it at my house with my sound bar and peddly little subwoofer. And I was just like, wow. I mean, the difference was mind blowing. Honestly, it made me decide like I need to get surround sound. Like this was the movie that pushed me over the top when I watched it in that way and realized how incredible, like you said, the sound design is because when I had it up loud, when I had the surround sound, I actually was picking up on all those little things you're mentioning in such great detail. And a lot of movies don't get the credit for the sound design that they have or the sound mixing simply because we can't always notice the, you know, intricacies of those things. But when you can, oh, man, it's good. Yeah, I mean, the the big thing that stands out to me is just hearing him in his suit, how he's breathing, because you can really figure out and kind of grab how he's feeling in those moments if he's just been working all day. Like, for instance, after the Hab explosion, he's pulling that big giant tarp out, and you, see, you hear him breathing so heavily. And it's almost as if you're like, oh, it's like a breath of despair, because he's like, crap i'm just having to throw this stuff away now i'm not going to be able to do what i was doing and i think having a suit that kind of amplifies that was just really really nice well let's get on to our connecting points and i think i'm gonna go first since mine happens first as we sometimes do and i don't really have a ton to say about this scene honestly patrick it just was one of several that made me cry the one before my connecting point that I'm going to mention, I guess I would say an honorable mention, is just 
the moment that Mark is able to link up with communication from Earth and NASA, where he actually starts crying in the hab or in the rover. He's freezing at the time, but like the overwhelming emotion of actually being able to talk to them back and forth and to have them acknowledge that he's alive and such. I think it's an incredible moment for him because it's really the first time we see him to express that from the point that he gets injured and surgeries himself back to normal up until that moment, it's all problem solving all the time. And in that moment, we get to see that emotion come out. And so I really, we also get a great follow up to his emotional moment when they start like, they tell him that they haven't told the crew and we get to see him mouth the words WTF over and over and over. And like, he's very angry. I love that about Mark. I love the scene where he's like cursing to them and they're like, don't Google that. And and they're like, tell him to watch his language. And I'm just like cussing at them for him because I'm like, are you kidding me right now? You're going to tell him to watch his language. Are you, are you joking? Anyway, I digress. Neither of those are my connecting point, but I really like them. But it's the scene where Mark is getting ready to make his journey in the rover to go in, launch himself up to be caught by the Hermes and rescued. And he is reading to us, or I guess he's writing it out. Essentially, he's sending this private message to Commander Lewis. And in it, he is asking her to tell his parents about his time on Mars. And he says this, he says, it's a lot to ask which is why I'm asking you. Not giving up, I'm just preparing for every outcome. Tell them I love what I do, and that I'm really good at it. And that I'm dying for something big and beautiful, and greater than me. Tell them I said I can live with that. And thank you for being my mom and dad. It kills me. <laughs> it it really does. And here's why it's so impactful for me on a huge amount of levels. It's impactful for me cinematically because Mark is expressing this emotion. He's getting emotional. And because, like I said, we don't see him that way except two or three times throughout the film. And so that limited nature of it makes it more effective when it comes. You know it's really hitting him hard. And it's hitting us hard with him because we've gone through this with him. Mark has not talked about his parents. He's not talked about himself. He has not showed fear, really, other than those brief seconds that we talked about before. And this is him acknowledging the reality. And he rarely acknowledges the reality. Because we mentioned this. You have to stay in this mindset that it's not an option. It's just solving the next problem. The moment you stop and worry and let yourself get consumed by the fear and the possibilities of things that could kill you around every corner, you're no longer going to be doing what you need to do to be ready for what could come and to stay alive in the moment. And this is a moment where he has the ability to finally say, listen, I understand this may not work out in my favor. Like I've done all of these things. I've made it this far, but this is really crazy, and it could not go well. And if it doesn't, 
I want them to know that I died happy, that I don't regret this. And that's big. That is, it's like he said, he's dying for something big and beautiful. He believes in this. And it doesn't matter, Patrick, to me, whether you or I believe in this. And that's what I think is amazing about movies like this and the stories they tell us. I don't know that I agree, honestly. I'm not saying I don't. But the point is that it doesn't matter whether I agree or not. It matters that Mark Watney, who I've spent two and a half hours with, has proven to me that he absolutely believes that this is big and beautiful and greater than him. And for him to finally mention something about loved ones in this message, his mom and dad, and to say thank you for being my mom and dad, like just what a poignant final message to give them. And on top of all that, it just hammers home that relationship he has with Commander Lewis. Like I was saying earlier about how much of a family this crew is. And you could look at it on the surface and you could write it off and be like, well, I'm sure all astronaut crews are like this. They spend hundreds of days in space locked up together. No, it's not like that, Patrick. I've been on a ship with people for seven or eight months at sea. And they're only people that I see for the most part. And guess what? We don't like each other just because we're together. <laughs> okay, that's not how that works. You're not put together because you like each other. You're put together because you have skill sets that match up in order to get a mission done. But these people genuinely care about each other, both from a mission perspective, from a respect perspective, but also from that personal level. And his ability to trust her right there and to show her that, I think is just amazing. And I think it really reflects her response later in the film, which I think is something you might be going to talk about. Well, I think that his relationship with her is something that I gravitate towards, pun intended, is the fact that they're not romantically connected at all. And I think later on when the credits start rolling or whatever, we see that she's with her husband, that there is a genuine friendship that both he and her have with each other my connecting point is just a moment and it's one it's the only moment that i cry doesn't mean that i have a heart of stone i probably do so it takes a lot but this was a real tearjerker for me and it's simply just before he's ready to take off and martinez is going to get him in the launch and she asks him she says, how you doing down there, Mark? And he says, I'm good. And he starts tearing up. He says, I'm anxious to get up to you. And this line right here, Aaron, thanks for coming back for me. Nowhere in the movie have we ever heard him say, I'm ready to be rescued. Always been about the mission. It's always been about surviving. And this moment right here, it's never repeated. He says, thanks for coming back for me. And that's huge. And the fact that she's the one he's talking to, I think is so brilliant because if it was anybody else, I don't think he would say that. I think for her and his relationship with her, it's about trust and it's about the fact that they're there because they want to rescue him because he matters. And I think that's what makes him saying, thanks for coming back for me, so important. And seeing him break up, seeing him just start bawling, you know it's because he's absolutely terrified. I mean, he is in a tarp-covered capsule 
and he's going to be thrust 12 G's up into space and then hopefully get caught. And it's this just small, intimate moment where you and I, we'd, we'd be dead by now. By the, you know, we talked about that. But if we had survived, we would probably still be dead because we wouldn't have. Anyway, to the point being, he's made it this far, and I think he's just beginning to crack at this point to a point where he's able to say, I can be vulnerable with this crew because that's who they are. They're my crew. They are my family. And for me, it's absolutely wonderful that they are coming back for me, that I matter. I think it's what we all wanted to say. I think it's what we all wanted him to feel, to hear him say that, knowing that he hadn't expressed that at all throughout the entire story makes that moment just as impactful. Yeah, man, I completely agree with you. And then I cry as well right then. And I think you're so right. And it's, it is absolutely beautiful. One other point I just want to make and throw out there before we end. I can't remember another space movie where no one dies. No one dies. Zero people die in this movie. That is unheard of, in my opinion. And I think it's pretty darn amazing. And yeah, another thing that really elevates it as a unique and hopeful piece of storytelling. Because it does not rely on a loss of life to be the dramatic thing that drives us to bigger action. It's keeping it from happening that drives us, you know? And I just think that that's beautiful. Yeah, The Martian is one of those movies that can play with cliche, but not make it feel that way. I think that it says everything that you just said, where we have good things. We have a wholesome kind of family of crew and NASA and this, all of this stuff that's very optimistic and it ends with nobody perishing. If you played that out in a paragraph of this is what the movie's about, I guarantee you get comments that said, well, that's cliche, that's stupid, but it's not. It's the way the story's told that makes it feel believable, sincere, genuine, whatever you want to call it, but ultimately a great piece of storytelling. That'll do it for this episode of Feeling Film. We have landed safely. Nobody was killed on this episode, gratefully enough. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> our Matt Damon double feature continues next week with our coverage of Goodwill Hunting. We'll see if he and the late Robin Williams' Bastin accents hold up. And hopefully they're better than mine. Patrons, be sure to vote for this month's donor pick. And if you're a part of the Facebook group, which you should be, if you're not, get on that. Throw your votes out for our substitute summer blockbuster bracket. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.